This is Let's Get Legal. We are powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. If you're new to the program, welcome. We uh, take a look at uh, big uh, issues in facing Chicago, the area, the state, the country. We look at it all through a legal lens. And uh, I am not a lawyer. I just get to play one on the radio. I get experts on to help us break things down. One of those is Mike Leonard from LeonardTrialLawyers.com. I mean, he's sort of an expert. We'll put it in quotes. Uh, Mike Leonard, thanks for... I'm just kidding. He's a well-known federal defense attorney uh, with a great record, also represents whistleblowers, a lot of other things, too. Mike, it's always great to chat with you. John, thanks for the sort of complimentary, sort of <laughs> not complimentary introduction. You really, you know, you, you you saved yourself there. Yeah, sure did. Where are you at now? What are you working on? Last time we chatted, you were in St. Louis, I believe. Yeah, we had a two-week intense uh, federal court trial down there, which just ended uh, last Friday. Unfortunately, our client was found guilty. It was a, really an intense case, and uh, you know, the jury was out for several days, and it was one we thought we were going to win on reasonable doubt, and, and we did. So super disappointing, but uh, how, what a heck of a trial that was. How hard is that for you? When I, Obviously, you obviously feel for your client, and uh, there, I don't know if there's guilt or you second-guess yourself, but what's it like as a lawyer when you don't have the case go the way you want it to? Oh, of course. You know, first of all, you feel horrible for your client. And, you know, the consequences of not getting the not guilty are always way, way on you and, uh, you know, their reaction and the consequences to them. And this, of course, you're going to second guess everything that, that you did at the trial and try to analyze it and take it forward to your other cases and see, you know, lessons learned. And so, you know, it is it is interesting. Every case, especially in federal court, you know, the cross-examination of the witnesses is what you do probably 80% of the time in those trials. And so you're always trying to learn from the incubator of each case, you know, what you can do better and what you could do differently. And uh, this was an interesting one in that we made the unusual decision to have our client testify. Okay. happens, I would say, I would say, John, happens, you know, maybe 1% to 5% of the time in federal criminal cases where the defendant testifies. Not one and out so of five. You case, said one to five percent. So yeah, one to five percent. Okay. I, w- I would guess it's probably that low. And and the idea being that you know a lot of criminal defendants have criminal histories. So there's the possibility depends upon the nature of their prior criminal you know conviction whether that even comes in whether the jury can ever hear about that. And then also just the the practicalness of whether a defendant can hold up under cross examination for anywhere from days to hours, right? Because it's just difficult for lay people to, you know, sit up there and answer yes, no questions from a government prosecutor who's been preparing for weeks or months for, to do this. Um, so in this case, we, we did have the defendant testify, was on the stand for probably a good four to five hours. Wow. Um, did extremely well. And then strangely enough, it, it was not subject to much cross-examination all, hmm. at all, which is highly unusual. The cross was, I'd say, five to 10 minutes was, was a shock really Whoa. to everybody. And I think for that reason and, and the way the government's case, and we, we thought we had a strong chance of winning on a reasonable doubt, but unfortunately we didn't, we didn't get the win. So you, know, you go on to the next one. I wanted to ask you to, so one to 5% of uh, clients testify. And of course, everyone, they're all entitled to legally, right? Even if you and your whole team advises, no, if that person wants to do it, they're able to, right? Oh yeah. So the way it goes, since that's such an important right, and you have to preserve the record. If you're the judge, you're required to, on the record, you know, speak to the defendant outside the presence of the jury and make sure that he or she's making the decision not to testify if they, if they decide not to uh, on their own free will, that no one's forcing them to do that. 
They've had a chance to talk to counsel about it, you know, all those sort of things to make sure that that's a free and voluntary waiver of that right to testify. And of course, you know, as you know, a defendant has no, no uh, obligation to testify, and that's why they typically don't, right. because it's a government burden to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So there's a lot that goes into that decision, and it's one where if you put the client on, you may regret it, or you may think about, you know, what, how the case would have gone differently. Um, if you don't, then, and if you lose, then you're often going to regret that decision. So it's, it's one of the decisions you really pain over uh, all in the time leading up to the trial, during the trial, and then when it's, of course, once you're, when you're turned to put on evidence, if you so choose to do that. But it's one of the probably most important decisions you have to make in, in any case. And jurors are instructed that if a defendant does not testify, that they should not ever hold that against them. That, that is instructed to the jury, right? That's outlined to them, right? Yeah, it is, John. And you sounded more like a lawyer. I know you said early on that you're not a lawyer, but I don't know. I don't know. I watch. But, a, yeah, I listen so, to a lot of uh, true crime podcasts. So <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. I, and I got a couple to recommend to you. But okay. yeah, at the beginning of the trial, when the jury is brought in, just for jury selection, that's one of the things. One of the preliminary instructions that's told to the jury that, hey, you know, it's the government's burden. Here are the charges. You know, the defendant has pled not guilty. Defendant has no obligation to put on any evidence at all or to testify. And that's reiterated and certainly an important part of the final instructions that go back to the jury. Um, and, you know, you know how it is. I mean, I think people nowadays understand that defendants uh, quite often don't testify. And I think, however, there is a yearning for them to hear to hear the defendant's side of the story. Right. Although, you know, under the instructions, you cannot consider the fact that defendant did not testify in your deliberations. Whether they really don't uh, is another question, but they're certainly probably not going to talk about that because they're instructed not to do that. But you can't help but thinking that's going to seep into their thought processes, even, even though they're not going to say it out loud to, to their fellow jurors. Do you, uh, as a juror, I've never been a juror, but if I was, part of the reason I think I'd want to hear from him or her is that I feel like I could sense whether they're telling the truth or not. And that's a real uh, bad path to think that I could go down. But I think that that's what jurors think that they're going to be able to discern from them. Well, yeah, because, you know, first of all, jurors are making credibility determinations about every witness. That's their job. So their job is to hear the government's witnesses. And if the defendant puts on witnesses, including themselves, to consider the credibility of each of those people. So they're making those credibility determinations. And of course, in any case, they would love to hear from the defendant if they could. Uh, But I think people also understand that's not the defendant's obligation to disprove the allegations, to prove their innocence. I think that's well ingrained in most people's heads. But do I think that people would typically want to hear from the defendant? Of course, there's, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, there's all sorts of studies, John, about, you know, whether people are good or not good at, you know, determining whether someone's credible based upon, you know, their analysis of their the speech of the testifier and, the body movements and the eye movements and all that stuff. So there's a lot of research that says people aren't good at doing that. Right. But I think we we all believe that we are. Don't you don't you think that you're good at that as well? Until you just said that, uh, I did. But no, I I I often think about if I were a defendant. Hopefully not. But if I am, I'm, I got you on the line with me, Michael. But um, I I I just feel like. They're so a defendant could overthink their reactions, could feel clammed up, could could feel like maybe they're overreacting because they're or excuse me, overacting because they're trying to uh, compensate for something. I, I feel like a defendant would get in their head so much on the stand trying to seem as authentic as possible. Oh, yeah, it's very tough because you you're thinking about that. 
you're nervous about it. You know, you're trying to, you're, I think most defendants typically, even if they say they want to testify and they're going to testify, when push comes to shove and they've seen the government's case and they can see how, you know, typically you're able to blow some holes into it, then they start feeling better about their odds of winning and less certain that they want to testify. Right. And they also see, they're also getting to view, you know, you test, you cross-examining the government's witnesses so they see that process live. And sometimes they've never seen that before. So all of that really goes into the decision, which is really not made for most defendants until it's your case. And it really becomes, you know, trigger time, whether you're going to do it or not, uh, because you have preconceived notions. I got to testify. I only we can only win if I testify. But then you get a very different thought process there, watching the trial play out in front of you. Right. Eight, four, seven uh, texted on in. Does Mr. Leonard think that maybe TV shows like Law and Order have made the public smarter about court cases? And I'm thinking maybe the opposite. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Well, it's a great question. You know, what what is often called now is the the CSI effect. Okay, so, you know, all of us now are watching all these shows on TV. We're listening to podcasts. We're becoming familiar with, you know, the evidence and the burden of proof and kind of engaging that analysis that the jurors would do. And a lot of people believe that the CSI effect um, is detrimental to prosecutors, meaning that the jurors now are more sophisticated, are holding them to a higher standard of proof, hmm. are expecting technical evidence or uh-huh. expecting you know, all sorts of evidence that they might not have in a given case that they're expecting to see and hear from. So there's there's differing views on whose benefit that is. I mean, the, the common logic is that the exposure to all these shows actually helps the defendant, whether that's true or not, it, it, it's a tough call in a given case. If you uh, see a case where they don't have as much physical evidence, can you just play a couple episodes for the jury and be like, come on, where, where's this, people? Yeah, John, I just pop that, you know, pop the disc in and yeah. just sit back. You know? <laughs> Let them do I, it I wish it was that easy. Yeah. But, but, yeah, it's funny because even in jury selection, this will come up. You know, we had a case last year in federal court in Chicago, which we ended up winning and getting not guilty. And one of the witnesses who were one of the jurors, prospective jurors that everyone was examining, made it known that he watches all these shows. Uh, However, he made it known that he really watches the ones that are from the law enforcement perspective, that he really respects law enforcement and that, you know, he believes them more. So sometimes, you know, the, the jurors will let out of the bag, you know, kind of their leanings. And of course, if you're a defendant, and defense counsel, you want to strike the person for cause or use one of your peremptory strikes to get rid of them. So, you know, sometimes they'll let you know what they're watching, and that can, <laughs> that can give you some clues as to what you think direction they'll be leaning for you. And, and it's hard to sometimes understand which way they're going to be leaning, but if they say things like that, you know they're not leaning in your favor. Right. Uh, I bet you wish you could have everyone's Netflix watch history, every ju- prospective jurors, and then you can make some determinations. Mike, I gotta, I gotta put you on hold because we got the news. We're coming up. We got some great questions coming in on the text line. Lisa's got a good one on the phone line too. Lisa, if you can hold on through the news, we got plenty more to talk with Mike Leonard, LeonardTrialLawyers.com. After the news here on WGN, uh, Mike Leonard joining us here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I'm John Hanson. It's one thirty nine. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. Mike, we're getting some great questions. You ready to tackle a few of them? I am. I want to ask you one question, John. Oh, please, though. please, okay? please, please, yeah. So I just heard about, uh, on your news broadcast a minute ago, the Google class action settlement. Uh-huh. 
is it true that you're a part of it and you're going to get paid just because they posted a picture of you from a party with a lampshade on your head and you're <laughs> going to get paid for that? I hope so. That party that cost like an abuse of the legal system, uh, John. That that party already cost me a lot, so a couple hundred bucks back the <laughs> other way will be great. Hey, yeah, I got that Facebook one too. That was great. Sign up for it if you can. Might as well try and jump on it. Um, all right, Mike. Uh, 847, and Lisa, I promise I'm going to you next. My, uh, the 847 wants to know, how many defendants hurt their case by talking to the police before getting into the courtroom? A lot of them, oh I God. imagine, right? What a, what a fantastic question. I just was talking to somebody about that this issue this week, and so many times, John, it's, it's unfortunate because a lot of people believe when, when they're approached by a member of law enforcement or a federal agent, a lot of them believe two things. Number one, that, you know, these people are on my side. Gee, if if I didn't do anything wrong, you know, why it would be not in my interest to talk to this person? I'm just going to answer some of the questions because I didn't do anything wrong, okay? Uh, the fact that they don't realize is that the people who are coming to interview them are really not on their team. They're not on their side. They're typically uh, looking to build a case against them, and they're going to use statements, maybe even innocuous ones or admissions against them for a criminal prosecution. So, it's really sad how often that happens where, you know, statements which are often not even audio or video recorded, it's an agent's recollection of what the person said to them that goes into a written report and then are used against them at trial. So that mistake is made way too, way too often. And certainly, if you want to cooperate with law, of course, you can, but doing it without an attorney is a dangerous proposition because you're going to ask questions. You may not be fully prepared for those questions. And you may not understand that they're trying to use these questions to, to build a prosecution against you. So I, I see it happen all the time, and I wish so many times we could have that back. Because, I, I, I got to push back you know. just a little bit, Mike. I mean, I, not push back. I, what you're saying, I, I get, especially if, if you either did something wrong or you think that they think you did something wrong. But we have a problem in this city where not enough people talk to police to help stop certain crimes from happening. And I feel like there's a a difference between helping police solve crimes versus when you are being investigated, right? Like, I mean, we we need we need some help. Law enforcement needs some help. Yeah, I view those as as two different scenarios. You know, uh, clearly, what you're talking about to me is more the eyewitness situation where I viewed a crime, I have information about a crime because I saw or heard something, or I, I witnessed it. You know, whatever. That's very different to me than. Uh, someone coming to you who is investigating you uh, more specifically and not just like, hey, we, we know that you saw this. So that's, that's, to me, very apples and oranges scenario. So I would agree with you. You know, people um, should feel comfortable when they witness something or see something to cooperate. Um, however, clearly, they're, even in that situation, there, there's a danger, not just from retaliation by somebody else, but the fact that you certainly could be investigated yourself. Right. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are very pro-law enforcement, and that's great, right? And I think that, the you know, you know that's become kind of a hot-button issue, even though it really shouldn't be in the long run. But I don't think that if you say no to talking to the police, you're not hurting their feelings. Like, they'd probably be thinking, yeah, they, this guy probably shouldn't be talking to me, but I'm going to try anyways. Like, they're not offended if you say, I want my lawyer there. No, they're not. I mean, they, they obviously have to stop asking you questions when you say you want counsel. And you can very, very well cooperate with yes. them with the assistance of counsel. You could answer all their questions if you wanted to. But it's certainly an important safeguard to your rights and an important safeguard if you are the target of that investigation. Um, as you know, John, in, in the federal cases especially, you know, the techniques that are employed 
are sophisticated by agents, you know, so they, they don't typically call you up and say, Hey, John, um, you know, we're investigating you. We'd like to, you know, come talk to you, but that's not what they do. They would typically find you in an, in a situation where you would not be expecting them to come, uh, maybe early in the morning or you're walking out of work or you're at the Starbucks or whatever. Uh, the idea is to surprise you, to have you in a situation that it's not comfortable um, and to try to, you know, get you to answer the questions sort of on the fly in a situation where you're not fully prepared. And so that, right. that is a technique that's used that's intentional. It's not a coincidence that they do it in that manner. So that's why it's important to have most times the assistance of counsel before you go ahead with that type of interview. Okay. Let's go to Lisa. You've been holding for a while, Lisa. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you. I love the show. I, I catch it every week. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Well, that, now I feel bad that you were on hold for 14 minutes. What's your What's your question, Lisa? Well, just kind of looping in from last uh, last week and kind of hearing the questions this week. I was just wondering, um, if President Trump gets indicted on the Mar-a-Lago stuff, is he going to be able to run for, you know, for the next campaign season? And... If he does get indicted, would Mr. Leonard represent him, and would he be the kind of client that you would put on the stand? Whoa! Can you ask, ask the uh, answer the second one first, Mike Leonard? Wow! Well, Do- Donald's on the other line, just asking me if I want to represent him. So, um, can I take that call first? Uh-huh. Um, uh, typically, Donald Trump is not the type of client I, I represent. But look. Uh, when people are faced with criminal charges of all sorts, you're not making an analysis of that of that person. You know, you're typically you're not making the decision to represent them. You know, based upon what's publicly said or known about them. Uh, since I'm such a Democrat, I might have some issues with with Mr. Trump in terms of that calculus. And also, I'm not sure if my wife would let me represent him either. <laughs> but he does. Um, but, he he but, deserves but a defense if it issues, ha- he deserves a defense if it happens. Right? I mean, as oh, yeah. strong well, defense as he can know, have. Look, yeah, and as we know, he's had, he, he has and will have teams of lawyers because there's, there's no shortage of individuals that have been providing representation to him. Uh, if he's indicted, that won't impact his ability to run. And I think, John, you had wanted to talk about some of the developments this week in, in the Mar-a-Lago case, right. both really, from the standpoint of really the 11th quick, Circuit yeah. and Ma- from the standpoint of the special master. One second, Mike, because I just want to make sure we got that point. Lisa, we're saying that if he is indicted, he can still run. In fact, if he's charged, I believe he can still run federally, right, Mike? Oh well, yeah, my, yeah. And or he's, he's found guilty, be convicted of anything. Yes. Yeah, the fact that he's charged with a crime, either at the state court level, or federal court level, would not disqualify him him from running for office. You know, cool. and certainly it might buoy his boosters. You know, since they think that uh, the FBI is against him, and there's you know a large conspiracy against him, might it might help him in the polls in some way. All right, Lisa. Thanks. Uh, we're going to dive into this a little deeper. Thanks for listening. Okay. Oh, okay. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, Mike, uh, yeah, so you just mentioned that. Tell you what, let's take a break uh, because I do want to talk a little bit about the special master thing. Like you, ju- you just teed it all up for us, Mike. So we'll, we'll talk Perfect. about everything that Mike, good, John? everything Mike just said, we're going to talk about next here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. On Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Every time we have Mike Leonard on, it's never enough time. Mike, we're getting so many questions. So we're going to do, I don't want to say rapid fire, but we'll be, uh, these are briefs. Okay, Mike? Okay, let's do it, John. So Special Master was appointed a couple weeks ago. They're reviewing documents, and now uh, the Special Master says the former president must, by the end of uh, this upcoming week, 
back up his allegation that the FBI planted evidence in the August 8th search. You can't just say it on Truth Social. Him or his lawyers need to like present evidence. This doesn't seem to be going, maybe, maybe it is going how the former president thought it was going to be going, but it doesn't seem to be this big win for the former president, at least from my untrained eyes. You? No, I would think it's a loss, John. I mean, you know, when you're making public statements that the documents they seized from Mar-a-Lago, that many of them were planted in the in the in the boxes by the FBI, that's a pretty serious allegation. So you, you can't be making that publicly either as the president himself or his lawyers and not expect a special master to say, hey, look, if that's true, you need to make a showing of what documents you claim were planted in there by the FBI, because that's an extremely serious allegation. And of course, the special master is taking his job seriously. He's not going to allow those kinds of unsubstantiated allegations to 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 rule the day. So uh, I think that's certainly a loss because I think it's going to be very difficult for the Trump team to show, hey, we think this this and the other thing were planted by the FBI. That's going to be very very difficult. So I would say definitely not not a good thing. But but not unexpected. Of course, any special master would probably say the same thing, no matter who they are. All right. Um, the 11th Circuit Federal Appeals Court permitted the Justice Department to resume its use of classified records seized from President Trump's estate as part of their ongoing criminal investigation. Does this negate what the special master is even there for? No. I mean, what it, the 11th Circuit opinion, which was lengthy and was also uh, supported by two Trump appointees, was actually there was a narrow issue before them, meaning could the DOJ continue to use the 100 or so documents that are labeled classified as part of their investigation, or did they have to wait until the special master has done this work? And they resoundingly said, no, uh, you can use the classified documents that were seized and continue your investigation using those. And I think any of the legal experts thought that that was what the court was going to say. And I think what's probably more important about the 11th Circuit decision is they, they went much beyond that issue and sort of teed up the fact that it doesn't look good ultimately for the Trump legal team in terms of making arguments because they've, the 11th Circuit has pointed out such things as, well, we, we don't even think the president has any legitimate interest in these documents. Even if he declassified them, it doesn't really matter. They're not his. They're not for his interest, they're for the public interest. So I think the decision is viewed by most people as as a negative thing going forward, even though it was sort of narrow about what it actually decided. Okay. 773 had a really interesting question. I didn't think so at first until I read it again. They want to know, what is the legal precedent that allows the government to charge someone for lying to the FBI? Um, Because can you lie to a a police officer, a local police officer, and not be charged for it? at what point are you, why are you able to be charged for lying to the FBI? It's an interesting question. Yeah, well, there, there's actually a federal statute that makes that criminal. So if you're just lying to a local official, if, if there's not a state law or local law that makes that an offense, you might not be able to charge. But under federal law, that actually is a crime. And it also could co- fall under, you know, the concept of obstructing justice, too, which would be a different offense. So, yeah, lying to the FBI to a federal official can be a basis for a federal prosecution. Okay. 773, how do you go about suing someone for defamation or harassment? How much does it cost to have a legal case a filing? And what's the maximum you can win for distress? 773 might need to call you offline, but any thoughts on that in general, Mike? Yeah, those are great questions. It comes up all the time. Um, number one, on defamation, uh, I think people think that anything that's said about them 
that's negative is defamatory. It's not the case under Illinois law, like most states. What is said about you has to rise to a very high level. You know, for examples might be someone saying that you committed fraud in your job or that you're a child molester or you're a criminal. Th- things of that nature Big that go to kind of the core character of an individual. So a lot of things that people think are defamatory, they, they are certainly negative towards them, but they don't reach that high threshold to have a defamation case. Uh, similarly, this concept of harassment comes up all the time in our cases where we represent individuals who are suing a company, usually from for employment-related matters. They'll call, call up and say, I'm really being harassed by this boss or by this coworker. And, you know, generalized harassment, people being harsh or mean to you, or really what is, you know, common sense harassment doesn't necessarily rise to a legal claim. What you have to show is that the harassment or discrimination you're being subjected to in the workplace is based upon a protected status, meaning I'm being harassed because of my race or my religion or my age or my gender or my ethnicity. So if it's not harassment based on a protected class, you're probably not going to have a claim, which surprises people because people think, well, I hear about hostile work environments or harassment. I I must have a case. And unfortunately, nine out of 10 times you don't under Illinois law or or most states laws. Okay, let's go to the phone lines. Mark's been holding for a while. Mark, welcome to WGN. What can we do for you today? Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, I listen every week. uh, Thank you. I learned something. All right. Me too. (laughs) Um, Um, What do you got for us? I just had a question. I've been reading about um, how Illinois is getting rid of uh, cash bail, apparently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, a lot of people are saying it's going to be the end of the world. Uh, some other people saying, you know, this is necessary to to correct decades of uh, injustice. And I'm just wondering how, how Mike feels about it, what he thinks uh, um, the impacts of the new reforms will be. Awesome. Well-worded, too, Mark. I appreciate that, uh, listing both sides there for us. And we're going to dive in deeper with Audrey Anderson in the next hour. So, Mike, you got about 45 seconds. What's your reaction and your thoughts? John, I'll talk, I'll talk super fast. Um, from a defense uh, lawyer's perspective, it's a, it's a good thing because what happens all too often is your client is denied bond, denied bail. They're in jail for huge amounts of time before trial, which really not only has a horrible physical, mental, psychological effect upon them, but also, you know, wears the client down, makes it harder for you to communicate and meet with them. It also makes them, in my view, more susceptible to wanting to plea, to sort of give up. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it's a positive thing. I understand from a public perspective, there's a lot of questions about whether everybody should be out on the street while they're, you know, charged with a crime. But I think this new law, you know, it does strike a balance. There, there are still safeguards where a judge can still order somebody to be detained in state court if there's, you know, certain showings of clear and convincing evidence. So it's it's not as like it's not as if everyone's gonna um, be out in the street. There's gonna be a standard, but it's now it's a very high standard to keep someone detained before their trial. That's it. All right, Mark, thanks for the call. Thanks for the question. And we'll get into that more with Audrey Anderson in the next hour. Mike Leonard, always great to chat with you, my friend. I really appreciate your time. We'll do it again soon, okay? I wish we could have talked about the Adnan Sayed case. Oh, my gosh. Next time, next time. All right. Sounds good, John. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Mike Leonard, leonardtriallawyers.com, 312-815-6572. News next from the Northwestern Medicine Newsroom.